Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature World TB Day and nanophotonics. But first, Kate Bernard talks to students on vacation at CSIRO. As Homer Simpson famously asked, Donuts, is there anything they can't do? CSIRO has recently built a floating donut to help guide people to their meeting rooms. Why? Well, it's just one of the projects that was part of CSIRO's Vacation Scholarship Program. More on that donut guide in a sec, but first let's hear a sample of some of the other research projects that have been going on at CSIRO this summer. Can you tell me what your project is about? I'm studying a giant radio galaxy called Centaurus A. Technology to centrally manage electricity demand. I'm looking at the formation and collapse of bubbles. It's about intraluminal manometry. Information Sciences Group Executive Alex Zielinski says the program gives students a chance to test drive a career in science. By coming and doing a 12-week stint with us, we hope that they get exposure to the organisation and to science and maybe consider a career in science. My project's about detecting sarcasm in text. Uh, the autonomous catamaran travels down the water by itself. Using eye tracking to understand users to improve search engines. That was some of the vacation students talking about the projects they've been working on. But back to Homer Simpson and his donuts. Avionics engineering student Brian Huang has designed a donut-shaped blimp to guide people around buildings. I asked Brian what I'm likely to see if I turn up at CSIRO reception in Queensland. So it's actually a, a donut-shaped blimp because um, we wanted to try something different and unconventional. So um, if you can just imagine a donut-shaped balloon, that, that's kind of what will be at reception. And uh, for example, if you need to, you know, if you're here for a meeting, you go up to reception and you know, should be able to put that room number into the blimp and uh, the blimp will be able to take you to that place. So I rock up at reception and there's a, a donut floating there yeah. and it's going to take me to my meeting room. Uh, that's right. That's, that's the intention once this is finished. <laughs> and so why would you go for a donut shape? Do you like donuts yourself? Actually, not really, to be honest. No, we went for a donut shape because we wanted something that offered better manoeuvrability. If you could imagine, you know, the regular blimp shape is kind of like a like a rugby rugby ball shape, you know, elongated. It, it wouldn't be very uh, manoeuvrable within narrow corridors, you know, fitting through doors, doing sharp turns. And uh, with the donut, um, it's actually quite slim and small, and uh, it's actually able to uh, do these things. Okay, so how does it actually move around? Okay, so it has uh, three propellers uh, mounted um, in, if you can imagine, the hollow point of that, of that donut. And uh, there's two front-facing ones, which allows it to go forwards and backwards and turn left and right. And also a uh, vertical mounted propeller, which uh, gives it its height control, so it can maintain a certain height above the ground. So you've got some propellers pushing it forwards and backwards and up and down. How does it actually know where to go? Like, has it got a little video camera on it or something? Currently, uh, it has a couple of uh, infrared ranging sensors. So it has uh, one facing forward and one facing down. And 
these sensors allows it to know uh, whether it's going to hit the ground if it's getting too close or whether there's a wall in front of it and it needs to avoid that. Now the next step would be uh, utilizing something called the wireless sensor network, a CSIRO. What's a wireless sensor network? Okay, so a lot of these little static nodes, right, so basically you think a little chip and they're scattered around the building and uh, each of these chips uh, know, knows exactly where they are and uh, they can communicate with a very similar chip that is on the blimp itself. So, for example, once the blimp uh, approaches one of these little nodes, then uh, that node would be able to tell the blimp where the blimp is, and then it'd be able to travel from node to node and be able to find its way to, you know, say, the kitchen or a meeting room, something like that. Why would you want to have a, a donut blimp to guide you? Why wouldn't you just want to, you know, surely a, a map would do, or what about a person? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like a proof of concept project, so this may not be, you know, better than giving them a map. Um, even though I don't think maps are really good. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the, the technology used on board this blimp um, is, is a basis for, you know, any kind of navigation that can be used in the future. So, so it's kind of proving that this is possible and, like, using this technology uh, works for these kinds of applications. And from donut blimps to Twitter, Cassie Hill spent the summer working out who's tweeting who and finding communities among Twitter users. A community is a grouping of people where they interact more with people in their uh, group or community than they do with people outside of that. The Twitter data that I had was taken at the time of the election, so people who have been tweeting anything to do with the election, they were the ones collected. So, um, so this is the 2010 uh, national election? Yes, yes. Um, there were three standout communities that were massive, like in comparison to all the other communities. Uh, in the middle of the biggest one was Julia Gillard. Also, Kevin Rudd was one of the super communities and Malcolm Turnbull as well. So there's sort of just one node in this community, but then everyone can get grouped, grouped to them. All right, so you've got all this Twitter data. How did you find the communities within all this data? Okay, so um, I researched an algorithm. An algorithm is just a piece of computing code that performs a specific task. So... Uh, this algorithm takes in a network, which is um, all the people and all their tweet links or all their following links or whatever I'm analysing. So it takes that in and um, it, it runs its process, goes through all the nodes and decides which ones are more similar based on their links and who they talk to. So if, they're, if someone's in Julia Gillard's community, that means they've tweeted her, or not even her, just pe other people in her community. So they've been more involved in tweeting people in that community than they have in, say, Kevin Rudd's community. So why would we want to know about communities in Twitter? Uh, well, it's a really good way to be able to analyse and gain knowledge from all this data that's hard to follow and might not really mean anything by itself or as a huge clump. You can analyse and be able to understand how some important person, say Julia Gillard, in the middle of this huge community, um, how she influences the people and how they influence her and how the communication can flow around them. Yeah, so we can, we can get information um, about maybe what people are interested in, what they like, uh, what sort of things they support, um, I think things like that. That was Cassie Hill talking about her project detecting communities in Twitter. And finally to a project where mathematicians are helping doctors prevent breast cancer. Tarek El-Jindi worked on a computer program to automatically analyse mammograms. I started by asking him why this is an important area to work on. 
Prevention is really important when you're looking at breast cancer. Um, often people find out that they've got it too late. So what, what they want to do is to be able to isolate patients that have high risk. And one of the high risk factors is breast density. At the moment, mammograms are used to help detect breast density. That's done by radiologists. What we'd like to do is to automate that process. And obviously, this is all done by computer, and there's a lot of maths that goes into how to write those computer programs. So can you tell us about how you actually go about analysing these mammograms? Yeah, um, well, there are regions of pixels that uh, are used in images. These pixels go from 0 up to 255. 255 is white. Uh, and those uh, are the pixels that are in the ones that have high density. That that's what we're looking for. So it's about so it's about the color of the pixel or the the shade. The intensity, yeah, yeah. So what we want to do is the the different mammograms have different intensity ranges based on the the um, machinery that was used. So it's not simple enough to say, oh, above this intensity, this is this is dense, and below it is not dense. There's there's a lot of mathematical. A formulation that goes into determining what is actually dense or not. And so you're writing a computer program that's going to automatically figure this out, is, is that right? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. There's, yeah, there's been a lot of work um, by other people beforehand at CSIRO to sort of build up the software, like, provide a real interface. In the end, doctors can use this themselves. And so what's been the best part about doing this project? Well, it's, it's always really nice to get results at the end that show that what you've been doing is actually applicable and useful. At the end, I think we got roughly 90% accuracy with the images that we were working with. Overall, it's done a very good job. We're very happy with it. That was Tarek Eljindi telling me about automated mammogram analysis. More information about the vacation scholarships are available on CSIRO's website, csiro.au. And thanks to all the students who told me a little bit about their projects. Next, Victoria Bond will be speaking to us about World TB Day on March 24th. So when I've mentioned that March 24th is World Tuberculosis Day, many people have been pretty incredulous, exclaiming things along the line of tuberculosis. Isn't that something poets died of back in the 1800s? Well, in fact, no. Today, a third of the world's population has been infected with TB. And as of 2008, 9 million new cases have been diagnosed. That's up from 6 million new cases just 20 years ago. So, we have an effective antibiotic treatment of TB, as well as a vaccine. Why isn't this disease going away? There are lots of contributing factors. For one thing, tuberculosis is an airborne disease, which is spread by coughing. Now, while many people are exposed to the disease, and many people also get infected, most infections remain latent. So, that means that even if a population of people may appear to be perfectly healthy, there could still be a pool of disease that can get reactivated later on and continue the spread of disease over time. Another factor is immune compromise. So, in a healthy population, the risk of TB reactivation is about 10% in a person's lifetime if they're carrying the disease. However, in people with poor immune systems, so that's people with HIV or AIDS or people who suffer from malnutrition, the risk of reactivation is about 10% per year. So this means essentially that these people who are immune compromised are more likely to both have active TB and spread the disease. And let's not forget the problem of TB treatment. To effectively treat tuberculosis, a person has to take 
roughly two to four drugs every day without fail for at least six months. Sometimes treatments can go for as long as 24 months. Now, these drugs are notoriously unpleasant to take. They boast a wide range of side effects. And if you skip a couple, um, you can have bacteria that becomes resistant and even more difficult to treat. Perhaps you've heard of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. This is a direct result of people failing to take their TB medication consistently. Finally, even the diagnosis of tuberculosis is extremely difficult. The bacteria is finicky, and it grows very slowly in laboratories. So a definitive diagnosis of tuberculosis can take up to six weeks. There are plenty of other factors that are contributing to the TB epidemic, such as continued underinvestment in healthcare and discrimination within hospitals and clinics against people likely to have TB, such as foreign immigrants and the homeless. So around the world today, what is the impact of TB? Roughly 2 million deaths are attributed to TB each year around the world. And in developing countries, especially those with a high incidence of HIV, tuberculosis is among the leading cause of death. This is particularly so in children whose immune systems have not fully formed yet, and in whom the diagnosis can be especially difficult. Just to give you an idea, roughly 20 to 50% of children who share a household with someone infected with active TB become themselves infected, and TB acquired during childhood can have some devastating long-term effects, such as blindness or deafness. That's because even though TB is a drug that affects lungs primarily, it can actually spread to any tissue, ligaments, bones, blood, brain. And many children get meningitis, which is an infection of the brain from tuberculosis, which can cause long-standing neurological deficits. So that's pretty much a nutshell of uh, why TB is still relevant today as opposed to the 1800s and why we should be celebrating World TB Day and thinking hard about its impact on the world today. Thank you, Victoria. How would you know if you had TB in the Western world? In the Western world? Well, there's a big difference between TB in the developing world and TB in the, the Western world. TB in the Western world is much rarer, obviously, and so the biggest tip-off to someone having tuberculosis would probably be risk factors. I'm talking, uh, you know, time spent in prison, time spent in homeless shelters, and of course you've got the classic symptoms of wasting and coughing and malaise and fevers, but, but really it would be the exposure. Right, so it's where they've been gives you an indication of what's causing these symptoms. Precisely. And that's why when we do find someone who has tuberculosis in a country such as Australia, for instance, we do go back and do contact tracing. So we contact all of the people that they live with and perhaps even the people that they've worked with and test them for tuberculosis. And tuberculosis, it's a bacterium. That's right. So it's antibiotics. Antibiotics, yeah. One of the main, main treatments you're talking about there. Yeah. Right. And what are the other ones? What else do you have to do in addition to killing the bug? Well, that's that's the main thing, really, but it, it's just that it's a very slow-growing bacteria. So in order to kill it, you need to be taking medication for a long time. And that's f- four different medications for at least two months, and then it, two more medications for six months. So it's not excessively complicated to treat TB, but it's just, if you think about it from a, an individual level, it's very difficult to take a drug let alone four drugs consistently for any period of time, especially if that drug is making you sick. That's really the main problem to treating TB. Is it the drugs make you feel sicker so you want to stop them? Precisely. 
And, mm. you know, after a few, maybe even as soon as two months, you're feeling better. So why take these drugs for another four months? It's hard, it's hard to see the, the long-term effects of discontinuing your drug course early, which of course will be development of a drug-resistant tuberculosis and probably reactivation. So the message is, trust your doctor, take your medicine or you'll get sick again. Please take your medicine or you'll make people very sick with a bacteria that we can no longer treat. So one last thing about World TV Day, maybe some of our listeners are wondering, why March 24th? There's a pretty good story actually behind uh, the discovery of TB. Uh, this physician, Robert Koch, he actually demonstrated that the bacterium Mycobacterium tuberculosis caused tuberculosis on March 24, 1882. And this was one of the first times that someone had shown. Oh, yeah. It's one of the first times that someone had shown that a bacteria caused a disease in humans. And he was frightfully thorough. He was. So he was considered so innovative and inspirational that he was actually presented with the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1905. And what he did is he brought in essentially his whole laboratory to this talk. He brought in microscopes and cultures, tissue samples. He showed from tissue samples of guinea pigs that he had infected with um, caseating granulomas, with the cheesy stuff that you find in the lungs of people infected with TB. He put those in guinea pigs and made them sick, and then showed that it was the same bacteria in, in both humans and guinea pigs, etc. And he actually encouraged his audience to check the findings themselves. So this went down in history as one of the most inspirational talks in medicine ever. And basically, he was championed the father of bacteriology. So his name again? Robert Koch. Robert Koch? father of bacteriology. You can find out more about World TB Day on March 24th by going to www.stoptb.org. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SER. And over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Subscribe now. Professor Jeff Smith from the School of Physics and Advanced Materials in the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, spoke to me about nanophotonics and environmental energy flow. Photonics is using photons, that is the elementary particles of light or light, or light waves, and it's the technology that exploits that. So there's an enormous range of modern technology in medicine and uh, energy and uh, vision and so on and so on that uses photonics. And in increasing now, the NBN is the thing there, communications. And nanostructures are basically things that are around 10 to the minus 9 metres, so they're barely bigger than atoms. Yeah, well, one nanometre is, as you say, 10 to the minus 9. The basic structures we deal with in this game are typically a few nanometres up to 100, but uh, our energy work sometimes goes well beyond that in the micron scale, and you can even put nanostructures on little micron particles, which are more commonly used in, you know, but... We, we use all sorts of particles. Why is nanotechnology so important in dealing with environmental flows? Well, the energy flows in the environment uh, are quite complicated and you know, it's, they involve light and solar heat and thermal radiation and ultraviolet. And they come, they vary in the time of day, they vary in the season, 
and uh, they vary as the sky goes from clear to semi-cloudy to overcast. So there's enormous range of conditions. And if you want to handle that radiation either for keeping a building and people comfortable or for uh, generating energy from solar energy, then nearly all the technologies we we need um, mean we have to harmonise our response to what we want to do, which, or, which may be a technology or maybe just the human response to those flows. And so n- what nanotechnology does, it, it can allow you to more precisely or in, in low cost ways, in large scale, uh, in mass production, if you like, um, and that's where we focus our efforts, do c- control the, or harmonise with the natural energy flows in whichever way you want to uh, you know, produce more energy or uh, stop buildings getting hotter or colder, all those sorts of things. And, and also for human response directly with the eye, so you can deal with all these things. And uh, you know, so it's, it's quite a, a large array of a complex environments, especially when you take the time aspect into account and, and, the, and also the the, the directional aspects. So radiation changes over the day, but it also changes in direction it comes from, the morning, the, the afternoon, and when the clouds are there, it's more spread out and so on. And nano, interesting, nano can deal with directional effects as well as uh, what we call spectral, that is the colour effects. And, and while we're on the subject of nature, uh, this nano structures have evolved in nature largely because that is the best way of going about dealing with all these things, is the environment changes uh, in various ways. Living matter and uh, life forms have evolved to... In fact, they've got more complex and more diverse, and that's one of the intrinsic features of nanomaterials, is that they are... There's enormous, almost infinite diversity you can come up with, and uh, one of the key problems at the moment is in in the is knowing because this is a lot of this is new technology is it safe? And so people, uh, you know, especially some people are worried that we're letting toxic chemicals, a bit like asbestos, and asbestos is a nanostructure, by the way. But uh, <laughs> and some nanoparticles by themselves can be. Possibly we don't. There's, there's not. There's only very little. Some preliminary work being done on some animals and so on, and because a, a nanoparticle can sit right at the cellular level and do, well, you know, and damage, mm. well, potentially damage things. We don't know for sure. Sunscreen. There are sunscreens that are made of nanoparticles Indeed. at the moment. Some of the transparent sunscreens. Well, that's that's one of the tricks I talked about. You you can use it. Uh, zinc oxide and titanium oxide nanoparticles, what they do, uh, the reason the traditional zinc oxide was white is because the zinc particles were bigger and they, when you have a bigger particle, it's what's called scatters the light. It spreads it all directions and it looks white. If you get shrink the particle, then it, nanoparticles largely don't scatter much. When you get below a certain size and so the light goes, the light, that's the visible light you see with your eye, goes straight through. The UV is another matter. The UV, what these materials... And uh, so the zinc oxide 
still absorbs it and it's a very efficient absorber so it's an excellent sunscreen in principle so you can have nice clear sunscreen most efficient one of all and then some people say ah but this stuff uh, reacts with the is, is another uv effect is what we call photochemistry and you can uh, oh sorry i'd go one step for fo- what we call photocatalysis that is you can induce a chemical reaction in the presence of these particles with with ultraviolet light and that can be a, could be a worry but depends where it sits and uh, you know and the other possibility is getting into the bloodstream but most of the time the form it gets in the bloodstream is not i won't go into detail but it's not these nasty nanoparticles and then the uv may not come into play then but um the other things might but so the, the, there's work has to be done on safety on the other hand there are lots of tricks with titanium dioxide the chemical industry has come up with over the years because if you put titanium dioxide pigments into a plastic on a roof that uh, it can degrade through this photochemistry on the other hand if you do certain things to the nanoparticle that plastic will last forever and, they, and, and so it will last a very long time I the work I did in the Olympic Stadium, the, the very issue came into play. So, um, you know, you, you can there there are solutions, and this this is another thing nature has done. Nature works out with the limited resources at its disposal in the neighbourhood, and the temperature and so on. It 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 has worked out over the years that you, by changing nanostructures, you can go from a unstable or you know dead end situation into continuing and surviving which is what life in all... And that's very much how natural diversity in, in living forms occurred. As, as the environment changed, all these new branches formed. So uh, we, we have a lot in this game to learn from natural nanostructures, including some of the engineering that occurs in, in animals, or the natural engineering. We can learn from that and make structures that you know, have similar excellent characteristics. Excellent. Well, Jeff Smith, I'll have to wrap it up there. Thank you very much. You're welcome, man. That was Professor Jeff Smith talking about nanophotonics. You can find out more about the science faculty at science.uts.edu.au. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney... We need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond and Kate Barnard. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science.
Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Progressive science. There are many theories to compare. Who experiments help us find the best one? The best one. There are many theories to compare. Who experiments help us find the best one? That was Derek Muller.